Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. As you look through the history of the church, the Lord delights at times in using unusual individuals. Ones that the world would not think very highly of or think that they were all that important. There was one lady by the name of Mary. There was one person described her, simply described her this way. She was a most gentle-looking lady, rather below the average height, the complexion like yellow parchment, short, lank brown hair. However, a most pleasing expression and winning smile, and when she spoke, I thought I never heard such a musical voice. That individual that's being described is one that uh, history knows as Mary Slessor. Mary Slessor was a Scottish woman who, well, came from a family that wasn't all that great. She had an alcoholic for a father who spent everything that they had, died uh, when she was, uh, well, very young. Being the oldest daughter in the family, it fell upon her to uh, be the one who earned money. And so what she did is oftentimes she would work 10-hour days in a textile factory just to help make ends meet for family. But uh, she read about uh, some missionary endeavors, one of uh, David Livingston and what he was doing in the central part of Africa. And she became inspired after his death to take the gospel to Africa. And so uh, with little training, and with little uh, opportunity to get much education, she uh, set sail in 1876 for the country of Nigeria. For a time, she served with different missionaries, just learning what was going on. But eventually, she ended up going into the interior and becoming an individual that lived uh, amongst the people. She became known as Ma to many of them because she was always involved in different situations. You have times and occasions where uh, some of the tribes were going to go at war to one another because they were drunk and angry with one another, and she would come and stand between the two tribes before they would go off to battle. She at times would rescue uh, children who were born as twins. Uh, uh, Twins back in that culture were uh, ones that were devil babies, and so they were worthy of destruction, and she would save their lives and, and do all of this. But you think about why she was able to accomplish some of these things and she realized it wasn't her in fact uh, towards the end of her life she wrote one of her uh, supporters and just simply said this i have always said that i have no idea how or why god has carried me over so many funny and hard places and made these hordes of people submit to me, and why the government should have given me the privilege of a magistrate upon them, except an answer to prayer made it home for me. It is all beyond my comprehension. The only way I can explain it is on the ground that I have been prayed for more than most. Pray on, dear one, the power lays that way. She oftentimes described her own ministry this way, that she would pray, my one great consolation and rest is in prayer. I did not used to to believe the story of Daniel in the lion's den until I had to take some of the awful marches. And then I knew it was true that it was written for my comfort. Many a time I walked along praying, oh God of Daniel, shut their mouths. 
as she walked through the lines, and they did. For her, she lived her life uh, on the basis of people praying for her. At the end of her life, she emphasized this statement, prayer can do anything, let us try its power. In another letter to uh, people that were a part of her uh, group that uh, supported her, she said this, my life is one long, daily, hourly record of answered prayer. I can testify with a full and often wonder-stricken awe that I believe God answers prayer. I know God answers prayer. For her, a relatively unknown Scottish woman in the middle of Africa who's suddenly given responsibility to be basically the governor of the region, reaching out to people, she recognized it was nothing that she had done, but it was on the basis of prayer, both of her own prayer and the prayer of many supporters, that God was able to save many people out of that region, her being a single woman involved in that region. You realize that has been God's plan for generations. That churches may send out individuals, but what they're doing for them is that they ought to be praying for them. That certain things get accomplished. Now, each missionary has different things that they need accomplished. But missionaries realize this, and they have, uh, from the Apostle Paul on, realized that they need a church united in prayer for them to get things accomplished. And what we have in Romans chapter 15 is a section of the Scripture that is very personal in nature, but it's one where the Apostle Paul kind of opens up his heart, and what we find in the rest of the Bible is that we find out that there is answers to prayer may not have been the way that the Apostle Paul expected it, but that God answers prayer. See, in, in Romans chapter 15, at the end of the section where Paul is talking about his plans for ministry and what he looks to do, you find in verse number 30, he makes this statement. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. What we're going to see in this uh, passage of Scripture, and really is the the goal for us in looking at this this morning is just simply this, is that Christians combine to pray for ministry opportunities. That's what should be going on. When ministry opportunities are available, whether they be missionaries or whether they be your own church, that prayer goes up that God would accomplish certain things, that God would do certain things. And looking at verse number 30, you do see that there is a challenge to pray together for ministry. You have this starting off term, I beseech you, brethren, or brothers and sisters, we might say. Uh, I beseech you. That word uh, beseech is used throughout uh, the letters of Paul, and it can mean just simply a challenge or encouragement. But in the case of way, the way that Paul is writing here, it's a challenge and an admonition. It's almost a charge or a command. This is something that you need to be doing as the church. It's something that should happen. 
I mean, Paul, throughout his ministry, called for churches to pray for him. It's not an unusual thing what he does here in this letter to Romans because he did this for other churches. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, right at the beginning of the la- that letter, he says this, "...ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many in our behalf." What he's praying there is what he's praying here. 2 Corinthians 1 is he's getting ready to deliver this gift from Macedonia and Achaia. And he's looking that this gets delivered. And in his letter in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, pray that this happens, that this gift gets delivered. Or in Colossians 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul makes this statement, with all praying for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. I find that an amazing passage because you think of anybody who would have been just uh, had the ability to speak in front of people about Christ. It would be Paul, but here he's saying, I need prayer that you would see that God does open the door for me to be able to expound, to explain, to preach. Paul didn't go into these things going, well, I'm the apostle Paul. People will have to listen to me. Uh, They'll understand me. No, he's just simply at times going, I need help. Pray for me that the door would be open, that I could preach the gospel. Or we have 1 Thessalonians 5.25, where Paul just simply makes this very short statement in that letter, brethren, pray for us. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says this, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course, that it runs freely uh, and be glorified, even as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. So Paul, throughout his ministry and in his letters, is saying, I need prayer. These things that are being accomplished by me are not just happening accidentally or because of my personality. No, it's because God is doing something and I need prayer. And so for Paul to have this passage to the Romans, he's just simply saying, I challenge you that you do this, that you pray for me. And he strengthens the challenge by just simply adding this at the end. I beseech you, verse uh, 30 says, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Okay, by the time you're done, you'll see that both God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are a part of this, that Paul is recognizing he needs all of their help to get things accomplished, that he needs this done. But he beseeches them, first of all, on the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. And you go, well, on the basis of what? On everything that God has done. Through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the one that he has already talked to them about, that came into the world to save sinners who couldn't save themselves, to provide for them justification, a right standing before God, uh, and do those things without them having to work or go through church or be religious or any of those things. They just accept it by faith. They can find a right standing before God. And then what God does is that he transforms that individual. That's what Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 is displaying, is that a person no longer is under the dominion of sin, but now under the dominion of Christ, and that they can do those things that are pleasing in God's sight, and that God can do certain things. And so when the Apostle Paul is saying, you need to pray for me, that Jesus Christ would do that work, what he's praying is for the very thing that he is, well, said to them, that the Holy Spirit is doing a good work, or excuse me, that Jesus Christ is doing a good work in them and that he will continue to do that. But Paul needs that help and that displayed in his own life. And not only that, he says, I pray you this, I beseech you by the love of the Spirit. 
You say, well, why does he suddenly bring up not just the Holy Spirit, but the love of the Spirit? Well, you think about what the Apostle Paul said when there was this transforming work that took place. In Romans chapter 5, where he's just talked about what saving grace does in the life of an individual, he then makes this statement in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the glory of God. And not only so, we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience and patience experience and experience and hope and hope maketh not a shame because of this, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What he said is this, when a person gets saved, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and transforms them and shows forth his love in their life that is then displayed to others. You think about this, Galatians chapter 5, and you have the talking about there, the fruit of the Spirit, and you go, what's the very first fruit? And it's the one that some say that's the main fruit and everything else comes out of it. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And for the Apostle Paul, he says, I beseech you on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done and what the Holy Spirit is capable of doing, of shedding love abroad, I'm going to need that for what I'm about to do. I need these things, so you need to call upon God that he would do these things in me. I will say this, that sometimes we talk about prayer and prayer seems to be really simple. And we all should do it. We, you know, need to do this. This is just a common thing to do. Do you realize that prayer is one of the most difficult things for Christians to do? It seems so simple to do. Just go to the Heavenly Father and make requests. Well, we just don't do it at times. I think I may have told you the story years ago, but uh, we had uh, a missions trip and we stopped at, uh, one of the missions trip, we stopped at the Air Force Museum in Dayton, Ohio. I think my daughter was about four years old at the time. And we went through the museum. I had been there a hundred times because my parents lived there and my dad does tours there and whatever else. But uh, we went through that museum and we got uh, done with that. And the kids, of course, go to the gift shop to look to spend money. And, and what I heard was my daughter wanted something. And she wanted something. And so Tammy said to her, well, go ask dad for it. You know, all she had to do is ask dad. You know what? She would have gotten it. You know what she did? She didn't ask dad. It would have been so easy for her to do it, but for her, you know, to go ask dad, now I've got to, you know, almost in the sense, okay, this is going to be a formal occasion that I've got to go ask dad that I can have this thing at the Air Force Museum gift shop and, and that, uh, you know, I need to ask and that he's going to be unwilling to do anything for me. Uh, so I don't know if I should ask or not. And she never asked. And so that object, I don't know, it may still be there. <laughs> but she never asked for it. You know, we're like that so often that we don't do the very simple thing. We've got a God in heaven who delights in hearing from us and delights in giving us good gifts, and we don't go to him in prayer. But there are other factors to this, not just our own, not thinking of what God is like. There are other things. Our own flesh doesn't like to pray. 
You know, our own flesh doesn't like talking to God, doesn't like being in the presence of God, and doesn't want us anywhere near Him. And so we have this battle, and the Apostle Paul acknowledges this, that prayer is a battle. Look at how he describes it here at the end of verse 30. He says this, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That word strive, we, well, in the Greek, it's the word agonize, agonismi. It's a word that was used to describe one who was wrestling. Okay, and you say, what are you doing in wrestling? Well, you're trying to pin another opponent down, and it's not easy because that person is not wanting to be pinned down. They're wanting to pin you down. And so you have this agony or strife that is, is, is described here, a battle that takes place, a wrestling and for many of us, that's what it feels like when praying to God that there's a wrestling that is required, like Jacob wrestling with God by the brook Jabbok uh, before he is, uh, enters the, the, the promised land. All of these things that are there, we feel like we have to wrestle and battle and strive. You ever thought about what Paul said about prayer in another passage? In Ephesians chapter 6, you have this statement that you're supposed to take into you the whole armor of God. And having done all to stand, stand. And that we're in a battle. And that God provides us certain things. And part of the equipment that God gives us as we go to battle is this. In verse number 18, after he talks about that we've been given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God helps us to stand uh, against temptation and to stand in difficult times. But then he also says this. You have a secondary weapon, which is really not a secondary weapon. It's a main weapon. But it's this. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints that idea of perseverance is that endurance i mean that's what prayer sometimes takes is just plain old out and out endurance to do it and paul continues to say this and for me that utterance may be given unto me that i may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel i mean he's then asking you know prayer is a battle it's a strife it's a fight but we need you to pray we need you to go to God and pray for ministry to happen and to occur and for things that God would love to do. They need to happen, but God is wanting us to start off by prayer and praying for those things. Prayer is not easy. It's something that we should do, and not only for individuals, but as groups at times pray long-term for individual or for God to do things in missionaries' lives and ministries' lives around the globe. We have to strive for this. I mean, what Paul asked for is that they pray that there would be results in his ministry. That God would accomplish certain things. That God would take care of certain things. You go, well, what was Paul praying for uh, in this passage? Well, first of all, he was praying for protection from opposition. Do you realize that as a Christian, not everyone's going to like you? Didn't know if that comes as a shock to you, but it does for some people that there are going to be people that oppose you if you're a Christian. If you just do what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian, they will not like you. 
For the Apostle Paul, he had problems. As you look at verse number 31, he says this, that my plans, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, that aren't obedient in Judea. Realize that Paul had been the center of the Jewish persecution. He had been the force that was behind it in persecuting Christians, and then he became a Christian himself. And the focal point of persecution in that time period was not Rome at that point. It was the city of Jerusalem. The Jews were doing whatever they could to stomp out the message of Jesus Christ. They viewed him as one who was a, uh, a false god. That to say that he was God was blasphemy, and blasphemy was worthy of death, and so they were hauling Christians off to have them killed because they didn't believe those things. And Paul says, I am going to Jerusalem, and what I need is protection from people that oppose. And no matter what ministry you have and where you're at, there will be opposition. And so you ought to pray to God for protection. We have missionaries that are in regions of the world that are dangerous. You know, if I was to say uh, for our ministry, the country of Cameroon, did we not have a missionary in that region that was killed? I mean, we have that type of thing that can happen. You've got other places where the government is the enemy. We have people in the region of Myanmar and others that the government is trying to do things to harm individuals, at times unreasonably. And you go, do the Christians need protection? Yes, because they are preaching the gospel, which makes them a target. We have individuals who are in need of protection, safety. And for Paul, this is not a minor thing because you think about his ministry to this point. He goes into every town and every town he preaches and he preaches to the Jews first and then they usually go to the government and start some sort of riot. In fact, on one occasion, Paul was stoned to death. It was a resurrection that God had and raised him from the dead. But they stoned him and he was dead because the Jews hated him so much. Paul understood what opposition was, and he at times would just simply pray this, I need your help in praying to God that he would give me protection from those that would seek to do me harm. And he was going right into the heart of those that would do him harm. He's going to show up in Jerusalem. So he's praying for protection. And so sometimes we're called to pray for protection for those that are going into ministry. But also we ought to be praying that well, as Paul asked these people to do, that there would be acceptance by believers. That the ministry of the Apostle Paul would be enjoyed by other believers. You realize as Christians, at times we don't get along with one another. You're like, well, we're Christians. And you go, yes, but we still have a sinful nature we still have our selfish nature. We're still who we are. And there are times where people could minister to us, but we are stubborn, we're selfish, we're sinful, and we don't want their help. Or we don't see the need for their ministry to us. And for the Apostle Paul, what he's coming is he's coming to this church at Jerusalem with money to help them. He's gathered it from the churches of Achaia and Macedonia, and he's there to be an encouragement to them. 
To say, listen, you are in need. Let me be able to, as the churches have given to me, let me be one who can encourage and help you. And there are individuals in this church of Jerusalem that just do not trust the Apostle Paul, even though they're Christians. They think that he is preaching a gospel which is saying, get rid of the Jewish uh, traditions, get rid of Jewish customs, and all of these things. And the Apostle Paul is preaching a gospel that a person is saved by Jesus Christ, just like the Jews were, but he's not saying you need to be or stop being Jewish if you're Jewish. Okay? Just as you would not say if you're of a nationality of the Gentiles, don't give up being that, but you're still a Christian. But some of these Jews are viewing him rather skeptically that maybe he's not really one to be trusted. And so Paul says, listen, you need to pray that when I go there and I have this gift to help them and I want to minister to them, that they accept it. That they enjoy the blessing that God has given to them from other churches, that they'll accept it in my hand. And you have to pray for this at times, that ministry will work. So Paul says, pray for protection from opposition, pray for acceptance by believers, and pray for, well, Paul asks for this, continuation of ministry. Because what Paul prays for, he says, there are ones that, in verse number 31, he prays that, okay, my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, and then verse 32, that I may come unto you, and you go, who's he writing to? The Romans. Okay, that I can come from Jerusalem and eventually show up to where you're at, that I might be able to do this by the will of God and may by you be refreshed, that I can be encouraged and you encourage me and I encourage you, that I can come to the church there in Rome, that my ministry can continue in other places and it can continue to you. His goal is to come to the Romans. That's his goal that he stated at the beginning of the book and the end of the book that he had been trying to get to the Romans for a long time and he hadn't been able to do it yet. But he's saying, I, I, I'm praying that I can have continued ministry. So you pray for that. That I might be refreshed in coming unto you. Now you have this prayer that is made. And the question is this, did this prayer get answered? Because sometimes you have these prayer requests that are made in these letters and you're like, well, I wonder if that got answered. You know, how did God answer that? Maybe God said no. Or maybe God just said not now. Well, for the Apostle Paul, uh, we at least are able to find out if this was truly answered, and we can find the answer in Acts chapter 21. And I want us to turn over there. See, the book of Acts was written by one by the name of Luke. Luke seems to join uh, Paul's ministry uh, right after Acts chapter 16 in, in the ministry there at Philippi. Uh, he's a part of those things and seems to have a part in this because the rest of the book of Acts uh, indicates that he's with Paul and he's a part of all the events that take place. And so what Luke was able to do is record the ministry of the apostle Paul. He would have been around when Paul wrote this letter from uh, where he was at uh, to the church at Rome. And would have been a part of that group that headed to Jerusalem. And what we find is that he gives an account of what happened when Paul got to Jerusalem. You find in Acts chapter 21, I want us to start in verse number 17. Okay, you say, did Paul's prayer get answered? Safety from opposition, acceptance by people in Jerusalem, and getting to Rome. Okay, 
Look at verse number 17 of chapter 21. It says this, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us... How? Skeptically? No. Gladly. Say, was that an accident? No. It's an answer to prayer. Answer to communication with God. Uh, And it says, verse 18, The day following, Paul went with us, uh, in with us unto James and to all the elders that were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what God, uh, what things God had wrought amongst the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all things which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children neither walk after the customs what is it therefore the multitude must needs come together for they will hear that thou art come do therefore this that we say unto thee we have four men which have a vow on them them take purify thyselves with them and at the charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that these things whereof they were informed concerning of thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. And then Paul takes these men. Now you say, what happened here? The Apostle Paul comes into the church at Jerusalem with the official council. Uh, James is a part of this, and some of the other pastors that are there, and they're just simply saying this. There are people that think that you are teaching contrary to Jewish custom, that you're saying that you have to stop being a Jew if you get saved, uh, and all of these things. And what we want you to do is just to go with these men who have a vow, go into the temple, and offer a sacrifice with them of praise to God and do this, that you're not showing yourself to be completely opposed to what is part of Jewish life. And then they said, we know you're preaching to the Gentiles, you're preaching to the nations, and we don't have any customs that we require of them except they stay safe from drinking blood, which was part of the customs of the day, but Jews would not do that, and they keep from fornication. And you say, what happens? Paul does this. And the church of Jerusalem goes, okay, The Apostle Paul, he's come with this gift. He's doing these things. The message he's preaching is good. The church of Jerusalem is thrilled. They're comforted by what's going on. They're hearing of thousands getting saved. And they're going, this is wonderful. So you go, how did that other prayer request go? Safety from opposition. Well, the problem is, is that when Paul shows up in the temple, there are unsaved Jews that are there, ones who are not followers of Jesus Christ, have no idea who this is. But what they see is that when he comes into the temple, they think that he's come in with a bunch of Gentiles to a section where they're not supposed to be at in the temple. And in verse 28, they all start crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place and further brought Greeks in this temple and polluted this holy place. Verse 30, and all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they were about to kill him, tidings came to the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain, the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then as the chief captain came near, he took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, demanding who he was and what he had done. Some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. 
And when he could not know certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried up into the castle, the fortress that was there. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was, when he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people, for the multitude of people followed after and said, away with him. And as Paul was led in the castle, he said to the chief priest, may I speak to thee? Who said, canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not the Egyptian? And so he goes through and talks about, he's thinking that he's another criminal of some kind. But verse 39, Paul said, I'm a man which is a man of a Jew of Tarshish, of the city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech thee, suffer me to speak in the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs, breckoned with his hand into the people, and there was made a great silence, and he began to speak to him in Hebrew. And you say, well, what happened after that? Well, you've got the whole account. Paul gets up and preaches the gospel to a group of people who are mad at him, but he's under the protection of the Romans. And he's kept safe by the Romans for many days. In fact, it's found out that there's 40 Jews that have bound themselves to an oath not to eat until they assassinate the Apostle Paul. And what the Roman government does is put a troop of soldiers around him and marches him down to the coast of Mediterranean to Caesarea, which was basically a Roman fortress town uh, and a palace town. And they keep him there for two years. Well, there's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you say, so was Paul protected from Jews that wanted him to be killed? And the answer is absolutely. God kept him safe from people who wanted to murder him. So you go, did Paul get to go to Rome? Well, Paul is the subject of conversation. Roman leaders after Roman leaders come into Caesarea, and it's a question of what do we do with this Paul? He's not broken any of our laws, but the Jews want to have him dead. We're not sure what we're supposed to do. And so they would talk to one another and then have Paul speak to them. And on one occasion, Paul is before Festus, uh, and Festus is trying to figure out what to do. And you find in Acts 25, verse 9, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. And you go, where does Caesar live? Rome. And so in some ways, Paul gets a kind of semi-expense paid trip to Rome at the expense of the Roman government, though he ended up paying for most of it. And you know the story in the book of Acts, he makes it across a stormy winter sea, goes through shipwreck, and even in all of that, God takes care of him miraculously in that shipwreck in Acts chapter 27 and 28. He's actually nearly killed by a poisonous snake uh, on the island of Malta, uh, and he survives that. And then he goes up the boot of Italy, and he finally ends up in the city of Rome, and where we read in our sermon, or the, the, the scripture reading this morning, we find him going to the church at Jerusalem and preaching to Jews there and giving them the gospel. Some of them not having heard of anything that's gone on there and they give him a hearing and they listen to the message of Jesus Christ and you find at the very end that he's there for two years and what he's doing is he's preaching the gospel and expanding the kingdom to people that are living in Rome. 
See, what we have is this test case. Pray for me on these things. And what the book of Acts just goes through and lays out, he was protected from people that wanted to kill him. He was accepted by people who were questioning who he was. And he ultimately gets to Rome. God answered the prayer of the church. When it was united, God did this. And so the apostle Paul is working a test case here. Pray for this. And then we see it in the writings later on, that God answers the fervent, striving prayers of people, his own people. And ultimately, in verse number 33, the Apostle Paul just then says this. Okay, I'm asking you to pray for all these things. I'm going to close off, but he's still got another chapter. He's not done yet. He's he's had one prayer ready to close off. Now he's given a second prayer to close off his letter. And he says this, Now the God of peace be with you all. And the Apostle Paul had, for the last three to four chapters, desired peace amongst the brethren, Gentiles and Jews, weak and strong, getting along with one another. He's looking to go to Jerusalem and be with people there that he needs to get along with. He's looking that God would be, keep him safe, that he would be in peaceful circumstances so he wouldn't die. And he's looking to get to Rome to encourage them. And he just simply says this, the only one that can accomplish this is this, now the God of peace. That's the only one that can get this accomplished. So why are you praying? You're going to the one who can do these things. He is the only one who can truly give peace, who can bring calm. And so when we're praying, we're going to the only one that can do this. And he says, now may the God of peace be with you and with me. He makes a prayer for these people. And so true peace is associated with God so fully that Paul had characterized God by it. And so for us, as we consider, we have a number of missionaries that we support. People that we would say are on the front lines. We're supporting them to go places we can't go, and we wouldn't know what to do when we got there. But they're praying oftentimes, and they send us emails, and they send letters, and you get these things. The question is, are you fervently praying for them? Not just merely going, oh, well, we give them money. They ought to be doing okay. No, are are we praying for them? They face opposition, and some opposition is just merely this. They live in a culture that doesn't even have a clue as to who God is. You say, how do you break into a culture like that? How does it work uh, that they get accepted by that? God's got to do a work. God's got to prepare the road. God has to open the door for people to accept the gospel. And so what you... Well, should be praying for these missionaries as you read these things. Go, if I had the Apostle Paul, I would be praying for him to do these things. So I'm these people doing the same work as the Apostle Paul. I'll pray fervently that God protects them, keeps them safe, opens the door so that the gospel is accepted, and that they will bring refreshing to believers, that they can strengthen believers wherever they go. Your prayers for them have impact. I was thinking about this, and it comes to another story about a missionary in a totally different region of the world than what you had uh, with Mary Slessor, a man by the name of James O. Frazier. James Frazier could have lived his life as a concert pianist. 
That's what he could have done. He was very good at that, but he was moved by the need of people to accept the gospel. He had heard the work of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission, and so he desired to go to a region of the world where the gospel was not uh, heard and amongst people that had not heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so he chose a region of southeast China, uh, and he went to a group of people known as the Lisu people. The Lisu people were very difficult to get to because they lived in the mountainous regions. There was no paths to get anywhere. There were no trails and roads to get to where they lived. They lived in high mountains, and for James Fraser to get there, it would oftentimes exert much of his energy just to get to a small town or village where these people lived. And when he would get there, these people uh, were there. They were demon worshipers. They all had little statues in their corner that they would have there, and they would worship and offer sacrifices to these statues. Uh, and and if you didn't offer, in their mind, if you didn't offer things to those statues, that bad things happened. They lived in darkness as far as spiritually. And they'd lived hundreds of years like this. And so James Frazier came to a region like this, slowly trying to identify for them who God was. And that he had sent his son Jesus to die for their sins. But you have a whole culture of people that are in oppression by demonic activity and by Satan's power and by years and years of tradition. And so what he began to do is that he, well, began to write and felt the need for people to pray for him. And so he started sending letters and, and, and asking for people to specifically pray for him, to group together to pray in 1913, uh, Fraser wrote his mother, I know you will never fail me in the matter of intercession, but will you think and pray about getting a group of like-minded friends, whether few or many, whether in one place or scattered, to join in the same petitions? If you could form a small prayer circle, I would write regularly to the members. A handful of his mother's friends got together in England and launched Fraser's first prayer circle. Over time, the prayer circle grew. To encourage them, Fraser wrote, Solid, lasting missionary work is done on our needs. What I covet more than anything is earnest, believing prayer. And I write to ask you to continue to put up much prayer for me and the work that's here. It's but six years later that Fraser had begun to experience uh, the effect of increased prayer as doors began to open and individual Lisu people were saved. He wrote, uh, calling for more people to pray. He made this statement, knowing as I do the conditions of the work, its magnitude and its potential, its difficulties and opposition it meets with, I have definitely resolved with God's help to enlarge the place of my tent, to lengthen my prayer cords and strengthen my intercessory stakes. I have, that is to say, resolved to make a forward movement with regard to the prayer circle. He writes in his letter in the same year to the prayer circles, I cannot insist too strongly on my own helplessness among these people apart from the grace of God. Although I have been now 10 years in China and have had considerable experience with both Chinese and Lisu, I find myself able to do little or nothing apart from God's going before me and working among them. Without this, I feel like a man who has his boat grounded in shallow water. Pull or push as he may, he will not be able to make his boat move more than a few inches, but let the tide come in and lift his boat off the bottom. Then he will be able to move it as far as he pleases quite easily and without friction. 
He continued to write uh, to people about the necessity of prayer. Uh, Just a year later, he said this, the longer the preparation of God working in the hearts through intercessory prayer, the deeper the work, the deeper the root, the firmer the plant when once it springs above the ground. I do not believe that any deep work of God takes any root without long preparation somewhere. He's talking about people praying behind the scenes. To his prayer circles, he wrote, I am sure of anything. It is your prayers that have made a real difference in my life and my service. And then he said this, and uh, just a year later, I used to think that prayer should have the first place in teaching the second. I now feel that it would be truer to give prayer the first, second, and third place and teaching the fourth. Eventually ended up uh, many years uh, spending time there and people got saved. And uh, the one article I was reading about the life of James Frazier that somebody went over to that region in 2018 and they couldn't communicate with anybody there because they didn't know the language of that region. But he did mention the name of James O. Frazier. And there were a whole bunch of people a hundred years later that are nodding their heads because their grandparents and their great-grandparents had come to a saving faith as the result of a man climbing up to remote mountain villages and giving the gospel and that they had been saved. And for generations later, there are still Christians there in that Lisu region in Southeast China that love the Lord and know Jesus Christ because of James Frazier. But it's not so much what James James Frazier would have said. It wasn't him. It would have been as a result of the intercessory prayers of individuals going before him, preparing the way and God taking those prayers and giving feet to those prayers and opening up doors for the gospel. We have opportunity. Some of you say, I don't have, I don't have the ability and energy to go places and do different things. But do you realize that your prayer for ministries and for individuals has power? That's what this passage is about, that you have opportunity to enter into that work. And you may not be able to be there, but you're doing just as much work going to God and saying, God, do a work in those people's ministry, wherever they may be, whether it's in Cameroon or the Ukraine or in England or in South America or in Japan, in those regions that you can still do a work there. And you did in answered prayer 2,000 years ago in the life of the Apostle Paul, do the same kind of work today. You're the same God. You're the same one who has concern for people. Lord, open up doors. And so we have an opportunity to minister, even though it's hundreds and thousands of miles away, and to have impact for eternity if we're just but willing to take up and strive in prayer and do a work that God would open hearts, open minds, and see people saved. And those that are saved, that God would strengthen them to continue the work. You have the opportunity to have impact. Take advantage of it and pray. Lord, we come to you today. And there are regions of our world that are closed to the gospel. But there are people who are willing and are there that you've called, may we give them the support that they need by lifting them up in prayer, that you would give them safety, 
from those that would seek to harm them and oppose their ministry, that you would give them power as they preach the gospel, that people would be saved. And Lord, may we pray for the continued growth of those that are saved, people that are from those regions, that you would grow and do a work of Christ Jesus in their heart, that you would have long-term impact in ministries where you might say there's no hope from a human perspective, but we forget that we can come and ask you and strive in prayer with you and you delight in answering prayer. So may we pray uh, as a, a congregation for our ministry here, but also may we lift up those that are far across the ocean and lift them up. And may we be able to rejoice at what you're able to do in breaking open doors and hearts for the gospel, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and for your glory. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.